Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We've been going along in the Sermon on the Mount. We're Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to get there right away. This subject that we're going to look at today in prosecuting love is to be carried out by each of us with the most diligent attention because it's the love of God and it's the love of others. You see, the the kingdom, the Lord, the master, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to do this, and he does that on here on the mount. In a sense, this passage is, is really going to give believers a template, a template of how to love others. And the question always, not just some people, but all people. Do you love all people this way? This is a way to carry to the end the commands of the word of of truth. But before I get there, I want to tell you of a story. The story is of a man, his name is John Patton. He was a missionary. He was a missionary that was sent to the New Hebrides Island in the South Pacific Ocean. Um, John, along with his wife Mary, landed on the island of Tana in November of 1858. I think it's before you guys were born. Okay, these were Scottish missionaries. They were desiring to bring the word of the saving message of Jesus Christ of salvation okay, to these natives that were on these islands. In these early days, these natives were cannibals. Okay, I, I don't think I've ever seen a cannibal, but these are cannibals. Obviously, the natives were lost in, in superstition. They, they were lost in the cruelties of the hedonism of which they were raised, and you can see that. When they landed, Mary died in 1859. She was pregnant. 19 days later, after giving birth, her baby Peter succeeded her at the age of 36 days. Didn't get very far. And he died. John Patton then spent his nights sleeping on their graves. Had to sleep on their graves. Otherwise, his wife and his newborn would be eaten by the cannibals. And so he protected them by doing that. The natives would often threaten John, his family, and and even come to the brink of attacking John Patton and his family. He was rescued from that island by the Missionary Society, and, and, and he went back to Scotland where he remarried. And again, guess what he did? He returned to the islands. Think about it, folks, just for a moment. He's in a very contented life in Scotland, just married. Yes, I know it's cold and dreary there at times, but he's comfortable. He doesn't have to do this, but he wants to do it for the love of Christ in his heart. He gets on a ship twice to go to an island where he'll be rejected and and even have people trying to eat him. After some of the folks were saved on the island, they told attack him. They had all gotten together and they were going to attack him and his whole family and they wanted to eat all of them. They even admitted it, just what they wanted to do. These former cannibals 
said that John Patton had this huge army of men with swords surrounding him and swords surrounding his hut, and so they never attacked. Patton goes, what? What men? What army with swords? I, I, I don't know of any. He, he obviously gives credit to his great God and Savior, and we serve that same great God and Savior that protected him and his family. John went there with the exclusive purpose for the natives coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of love. That's why he came. He wanted to protect or see them come to Christ and then protect them from themselves. This passage will show us where we're going to go today that the Lord really expects more from us than we give. And when I say that he expects more from us than we give, it means all of us. Jesus' standard of love calls for an extraordinary love. It's an extraordinary love for people that are around you. This standard of love is beyond going to an island full of cannibals to bring the gospel, as extraordinary as that is. But it's living where you live, in the community you live, and loving those around you. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. And follow as I read. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do we prosecute love? How do we get to that point in our love? And the first step, that we're going to have three steps here today. We're going to look at these three steps in prosecuting love. Uh, the love of others. The first step is uncommon love. We see that in verses 43 and 44. You have heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's uncommon love. Anybody disagree with that? That's, that's uncommon love. That's not the way we do things. I think we'd all agree that this kind of love is not common to the human heart. Our hearts are so self-centered, so self-focused, we can't get out of that and love somebody if they don't love us. They don't give us back something in return. You see, it's easy to love the person that you're sitting next to at church. Well, at least most of the time. Yeah. It's easy to sit there and love the person next to you. However, what about your enemy? What about the man or the woman who has insulted you or degraded you? Or the boss who doesn't give you a raise or the boss who, who actually hates you, 
gives you the worst tasks that there are. What about your, I like this one, unbelieving in-laws? I can say that because I don't have any in-laws. They're outlaws. No, I'm only kidding. (laughs) What about your unbelieving in-laws? Jesus unveils the lack of love in the teaching of the day. That's what he's doing here. When he says this, you have heard it that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, the scribes, the teachers of the day, set a standard. And the standard was down here. Folks, that's not unlike some of the churches that we have around. That they set the standard down here. They set the standard of Christ lower rather than higher. The religious leaders knew the actual meaning of love according to the Old Testament, but they watered down this version here because they wanted to find favor with the people. They wanted to be liked. Who's going to make it a hard message? Why would you want to make it a hard message? You want people to like you. I've heard people want to leave Grace Church because they think it's a hard message. Yeah, it is a hard message. But that's what God wrote. That's what God wrote. You see, the Old Testament even wanted to water down a version because they wanted to be found favor with everyone. We always like people to like us, don't we? You see, it's sold better to the masses. And that's what happens today. You see some of these very popular churches with 30,000 people in it. And I'm looking, I'm going, what? why do they go there? I've just listened to nothing. And they go there for what? The music, the smoke, the band? Well, what are they going there for? The scribes taught that your neighbor would be one from your nation, one from your ethnic background, And your neighbor isn't somebody else. Your neighbor isn't the pagan family that lives across the road. This person was not considered a neighbor because they did not go to temple. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. That's actually a quote from Leviticus. You see that in Leviticus 19.18. We don't need to turn there. However, the rest of what was taught here by the scribes and the teachers was not in the Old Testament. The Jews of Jesus' day didn't think twice about loving the foreigner because they didn't even let the foreigner come across their mind because they didn't even think about the foreigner. They hated them. They were nothing. They were nothing. You see, the Jewish person was having trouble loving his neighbor that was the tax collector. He was having trouble loving his neighbor who was an abusive leader in the community, or he was having trouble loving his in-laws. Verse 44, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The mind of the first century Jew was just turned upside down and inside out. They, They were just shaken to their very core. Love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you? Can you imagine? You see, they were never exposed to this kind of teaching 
And certainly this kind of practice was way out of the norm. That this is not normal to who they are. And folks, if I may say, it's really not normal to us either. It's not normal to us. We have enemies in our mind and we think about them and and we don't love them. We don't even try to reach out to them. Some of you are snickering and saying, yeah, I know, I don't like those Democrats either. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. The command to love here in this verse is a present imperative. In plain English, folks, that means you are commanded by Jesus to start loving now and continue that love throughout the future. You're trying to prosecute that love right to the end. And you don't stop. It doesn't end. Even when they insult you and even when they do something you don't like and maybe even hurt you. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. There were multiple enemies at this time. The Romans were enemies. The Romans would order them around. Remember last week, if they go one mile, go two miles. Not last week, two weeks ago. Go one mile, go two miles. You know, you have to carry their burden for them. That, that's not much. You, could you imagine counting, carrying their burden for them and then still loving them? Eh, that's what God is calling you to. Love the tax collector, who in essence really was taxing you more than you were supposed to be taxed. Love your fellow Jew who hated you as well. To mention a few. Let me just give you a modern-day illustration. This is years and years and years ago when I was in uh, the sales business. You've heard me bring that up before, and I'm driving my car. I'm going home. I had seen a customer in Santa Monica, and and I figured, you know, rather than going on that freeway, which is not so free, uh, (laughs) it's usually crowded. Let me try Santa Monica, uh, uh, Sepulveda Boulevard, and I'll drive it over the the pass. And I'm going up up Sepulveda Boulevard, and... And uh, there's this van that's stuck and it's not moving. And I see that there's a Hasidic Jew there trying to push this truck to the side. I'm from New York and I knew Hasidic Jews in New York because we dealt with them. They were part of the shmata business is what we called it. And so I got to meet some of them and, and knew them. And so I figured, let me go help them. Let me get an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Why not? So I pulled my car over. And uh, with great effort, the two of us got his van out of the way. And I approached him to shake his hand. He can't shake my hand. He can't touch my skin. I'm a goim. I'm a Gentile. And so he grabs me like this to get my shirt so he doesn't touch my skin. I knew what that meant. I was not insulted by that. But you see, in the 21st century, that's the attitude towards the Gentile. I don't want to touch their skin. But in the first century, it wasn't just not touching the skin. They were dogs, the Gentiles were. They were the worst of the worst. And Jesus is saying, what? Love your enemies? They can't get that. They have to go see a psychiatrist. I mean, really? How in the world am I going to get this switched around? That's what I mean there. The head, their thinking is turned upside down and inside out. 
Jesus, what are you doing to me? When the Israelites entered the promised land, they were told to wipe out the existing people. This is what they remember. In the Old Testament, they were told to kill all of the Canaanites. That doesn't sound like loving your neighbor. And so they wanted to keep that going. Let's kill some more. (laughs) They were also instructed by God, listen to this, in the scriptures to eliminate the Amorites, the Moabites, the Midianites, and the Amalekites. Wipe them out. Remember the story of the Amalekites. It took them 300 years before they actually got the revenge and then wiped them out. But they still did it. That's how much hatred they had for their enemies. So it doesn't sound like love your enemies. But as we can see from Old Testament history, these nations did not did exactly what God knew they would do. They were trying to infiltrate the race of the Israelites to ruin the passageway or the, or the way of the, of the um, Messiah coming and mess up the genetic line there. They were trying to pollute the chosen people. They were trying to pollute the chosen people through idolatry. They were trying to take over the Jewish nation that way. God knew that was going to come and that's why he said to wipe them out. And they didn't do that. God knew he wanted to protect his chosen people. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. I I just need to point this out to you. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. I mean, all the way back to Deuteronomy, you get the warnings there. And it says there, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gergesites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. Can you imagine? That's what God can do. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. Destroy them. Folks, when it means destroy there, that means killing every man, woman, and child. God does not hold back. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. That was the cause of all of that killing, was there was being no intermarriage. Because then your bloodline for Jesus, the Messiah, is not going to be pure. No intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to uh, to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your son away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Folks, that's the warning that's out there. Yes, love your enemies, but don't become like your enemy. Love your enemies in trying to win them to Christ, yes. But don't do what they do. Don't be like they are. Don't do the things that they do. This is unbelievable love, though, even to love your enemies. Let's go back to Matthew. God instructed that nation 
under Joshua to conquer the land of Canaan. We're not going to go through Joshua and all of that, but they did not do it on that national level. And they had consequences over and over and over again. If you, if you love Old Testament history, there's so much there to just keep reading. It, it absolutely will fill your heart with knowing that God is continuing to be the same God. He doesn't change. He sent those people out to kill the enemies of God because they were going to subjugate his plan of salvation and he did not want that plan stopped, moved, removed, or anything else. Did anything change, though? Did anything change now that we're into the New Testament? Now we're into Matthew chapter 5. Does Jesus really change direction here? In a corporate sense, okay, nation to nation, he still wants them wiped out. But in the individual sense, the personal individual sense, I don't believe so. He wants us to love them. I don't know who we would call our enemy today. Taliban? But if I had one living near me, I'd want to see them come to Christ. I'd want them to know my Savior. I wouldn't consider him an an enemy until he started bombing my house or taking my goods or whatever it is. I want to protect my family, and you have every right to protect your family, and you better know how to protect your family. That's what you need to do. But that personal individual sense is that I want to win them to Christ. I want to love them like they've never been loved before. As it says in verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is what you are to be doing. Second step is unbelievable affection. Unbelievable affection. We say that in verses 45 through 47. So, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Why are you instructed here by the preaching of Jesus to love your enemies? The answer is pretty simple. He says it right away. So that or in order that you may show your character of affection of your heavenly father because that's what it's about. That's what it's about, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You are to be like Him. This uh, takes us all the way back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, which we've already looked at, but we're going to look at just the briefly here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You're in the family of God most when you look like Him. Your, your, your relationship with him is strong when you are acting like he acts. That's how uh, our children resemble us sometimes. They actually do the things that we do. I, I always tell parents, your children aren't going to do what you say. They're going to do what you do. That's what's going to happen. They wind up doing what you do. 
The declaration from Jesus is that if you display this unbelievable affection, you are like God. Wow. You are his children, his sons, his daughters. You resemble him in some way. And that is the love that's an extraordinary love. As well-informed believers, you know that you too were an enemy of God. And yet he still set his affection on you. And why in the world would he set his affection on you? Because you're cuter or smarter or richer? No. Because he loved you. Turn with me to Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. But God... And I love but God. Whenever, I, almost every time I see but God. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were the worst of the worst in our sin, and some of you come out of some horrific backgrounds, it says here God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for us by sending his son to die for us. Folks, he could have put everything on, let's redo this. Let's start it over again and we're all wiped out and there's nothing there. Could have done that. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We see this great truth from the Apostle Paul. And he says there, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So if you're dead, can you come alive? No, you cannot. It's an impossibility if you're dead. If you've ever seen a dead person, they can't come alive. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You're actually Satan's of the spirit that is not working, now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. That's how we lived in the lusts of our flesh. It, it, it may not be uh, totally decadent, but it's still in the lusts of our flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So you got everything covered here. The flesh being the outside, the mind being your heart. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's who you were. That's, that's what God was looking at when he looked at you and he demonstrated his love in sending his son. You were dead. You were indulging your desires. You were children of wrath. Oh, that's all you cared about. You were children of flesh. That's all you cared about was your flesh. Selfish to the core. You were like Adam and Eve when sin came into the world. They, they finally saw themselves, so they began to hide themselves because they saw themselves. Before that, they were naked. Verse 4, but God, here we go again with that but God, being rich in mercy because of what? Because of what? His great love. His great love, which he loved us. That's an incredible love, folks. I hope you understand that. I hope you realize that in your person, that if you are a true child of God, his love for you 
took you from being dead and made you alive. He didn't have to do that. Just like he didn't have to choose the Israelites over the Gergesites and the Hivites and all of the otherites. He didn't have to do that. But he did because of his great love. And now Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, is saying, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I I call this, and, and please let me develop it a little bit because I know some of you may jump on it. I call this common love. Common love. Today we call it common grace and theology, but it's common love. It's demonstrated here by God. He still loves them. Even though they are dead, he still loves them. How do I know that? Because they were created in the image of God. And and if he created them, he still loves them. He made them. He caused them to be. So he has this common grace, this common love for them. And folks, they get to enjoy this world. What are some of the things they get to enjoy? The sun, they get to enjoy the rain, they get to enjoy a nice day, a sunset. We we, saw that just the other day. Beautiful sunset. You know what else they get to enjoy? They get to enjoy marriage, the fruits of marriage, children, just like we do. They enjoy those common graces that we have. Because God loves them in a sense. Not in a full sense yet because they're not saved. Only once they get saved. Folks, we all come here to Grace Community Church. We greet each other, especially those who we know warmly and and, and affectionately. Matter of fact, every time I come over from the elders' prayer time, I'll, I'll come up here and I'll see the same kind of people talking or same people talking to one another because they know each other. They care for each other. They want to find out how their aunt is or their whatever it is that's going on. How was your Thanksgiving? All of those kinds of things. You're warm and you're affectionate towards those people. Why? Because they're warm and affectionate towards you. That's why. You know them, but you don't know everybody. You go to that same group. Now, I'm not, please, I, I'm not here to spank any of you. All right? I'm not here to spank any of you. I just want to give you another little illustration. Years ago, I was working on my doctorate. I, I sent my wife out of town. <laughs> okay, I just want to let you know, I just needed to have that time there in the house, quiet and alone. And I said, for four weeks, I mean, I had to write 200 pages, you know? I mean, how am I going to create 200 pages without four weeks? I didn't want to come to Grace Church because I knew the moment I stepped in here, oh, pastor, can I see you on Tuesday? Can I see you? I went, uh-uh-uh, no, no way. So I went to a local church around the corner, walked there. Three weeks in a row, no one said hello to me. No one said, you know, how you doing? Now, you got to realize I was letting my beard grow. You know, I wasn't shaving. I was bathing. I was bathing. Okay, because my wife wasn't around. I could do that. Um, Anyway, but I I, I guess, you know, if I ask those people at this local church, would you say that you have a friendly church? Do you know what the answer would be? Oh, yeah, we do. 
but they're friendly toward one another that are already there. Again, this is not a rebuke. It's just a learning experience. We're friendly to those who we know. Why? We're getting something. They're asking about us. They're asking about us. How was your week? How did you do? How did you get through your Thanksgiving? And how did you, you know, all of this kind of stuff. I got to tell you, there were so many kids around this Thanksgiving table and it was so beautiful. That's what I had. I mean, you could go on. I could tell you all the stories. I played with this little, I don't know, one and a half year old. She was cute. I enjoy that kind of stuff. Folks, what about when you leave this campus? You go down to the local restaurant here and they ask for your vaccine card. And you start grumbling, you know. I, I know, I've been there, I heard it, okay? You eventually sit down, but you sit down outside because you don't have a vaccine card. And then you bow your heads in prayer. And they're looking at you. Yeah. Understand, even that person who's not an enemy for sure, you, you may treat them like an enemy. They're still God's people. And they need to be respected. They need to be loved. Like it says here by Jesus. Love even those who are not lovely. Love even those who aren't in your inner circle, whatever that circle may be. Maybe it's a square, I don't know. Respect them. They were created by God in his image. And he's ordering you. He's telling you that you must do this. This is an imperative. He's commanding you to do that. That's what he does. Respect that person who's going to check your vaccine card. Respect that person who may cut you off on the freeway. Believe me, we've all been there. Verse 46 For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So you're no different than the unbeliever if you love those who love you. And my question would be, do we love differently than the unbeliever? I mean, my heart cries for the number of people that are walking in darkness. I remember, and maybe I've said this before, but I was in another country and I'm with a friend named Sang Kim and we're sitting and having a cup of tea or coffee or whatever it was. I probably would never touch tea, but coffee. And I'm looking down from the fourth floor on all of these people running around and I'm saying these people don't know God. They're, they're, this is all pre-epidemic and all of that kind of stuff and, all, and they don't know God. I go to my own hometown or, or our area where we live in New York and I see all these people, they don't know God. Do you display a love that's different than their love? You see, they get on the train, they go home and they hug their wife and hug their kids. And when they're on the train, they talk to the people on the train that talk to them. I've been there, folks. We should be loving differently. We should be loving differently. 
If you only love those who you have things in common with, are you loving like Jesus is indicating here in this text? Are you going to be used by him to go to a cannibal island? That'd be neat. As Jesus says here in verse 47, do not even the Gentiles do the same? I want to be different than that. I want to embrace the things of God completely and fully. Do not even the unbelievers respect others? You know, it's interesting. Uh, R. Kent Hughes said this about this particular passage here in this section. He was speaking of agape love that's, that's here, agape being the most intimate of love that you can have for a person. It's unselfish kind of love. And he, he likes to say this. He says, quote, what he, that is Jesus, commands here is a deliberate, intelligent, determined love, an invincible goodwill toward them. An invincible goodwill toward them. Do we have that for others? Do we have that for others? See, friends, agape love is not an emotional love. It's not something that I have to get this feeling for. No, it's a determined love. It's a deliberate love. This love is something that you determine in your mind and that produces goodwill towards others. If I may put it this way, it's prosecuting love. God's love. It's prosecuting it. The third step is unreachable perfection. Unreachable perfection. We see that in verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You are to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the conclusion, right? This is the end of that prosecuting love. Our lives are to be a model of the life of Jesus Christ. Remember who he sat down and had meals with? The tax collectors, prostitutes, and I'm not saying go see a prostitute. But he sat down with people who were sinners. And there are plenty of sinners to sit down with and talk about God. In actuality, Jesus is saying there should be no limit to the goodness that you express towards others. And I know some of you are out of the ballpark uh, evangelists. I know that anybody who's sitting still for a little while, you're jumping on top of them to tell them about Jesus Christ. That's great. Love them first. Let them see that first, that you care about them. Folks, no matter how much love you have shown, Keep at it. Keep going. Jesus is saying there's no limit to it. Leviticus 19.2 says, You shall be holy for the Lord your God and holy. This goal that he is pointing us to here, that I am going to label unreachable, is blameless in our relationships. That's what it's going to be, is blameless in our relationships. It is consistently and perfectly responding to sinless perfect, in sinless perfection to relationships. Oh my word. How much do we have to go? In our relationships with one another to make them sinless, blameless relationships. 
And those are even for the people we sit next to in church. You are to be consistently and perfectly responding in sinless perfection. When you come to Christ, hopefully, you heard such things as you need to pick up your cross daily, those kinds of things, the challenge that's there, that, that you're no longer the same person. This is a striving for Christ-likeness. This should be going on. Yes, we have grace. I understand grace. But you're still supposed to be striving for Christ-likeness. That Christ-likeness is not attained, but it is to be always sought after. Folks, I hope you understand we all are in this together. We're striving in the same route if we're believers. We're striving with the idea of attainment. But clearly understand that the Lord is the giver of this grace. Some try and get all that this, this call to perfection by saying that the Greek word here just means mature. It just means complete. Well, you know what? They're right. That's what the Greek word means there. So then you are to be mature and complete as your heavenly father. If you're going to love, that's the way you're supposed to love. That is perfect love. That is perfected love. That is prosecuted love. And God will give you grace if he sees that attitude in your heart. By the way, the Greek here is a future indicative. You shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, it's a command in a sense, but it's in the future. It's in future. You shall be. There are some segments of the Christian faith that actually believe they have sinless perfection. Um, Matter of fact, if you take the uh, counseling class level one, I think it's either week one or two, we talk about that because they've they've reached perfection. They've, They've gotten there already. At least that's what they say. But what they do is they change the definition of sin. They change the definition of a whole lot of other things. But that's where we're supposed to be headed. And we do not reach it. How do I know? Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. It says, and forgive us our debts. Jesus is now teaching how to pray. And he says, and forgive us our debts. Well, if you're perfected, how would you have debts? Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see, you always and, uh, and should be working on asking for forgiveness Knowing that perfection is out there and that you're striving for that perfection, you're doing this to please and to glorify God himself. That's what you're doing. This word of God should be bringing about some questions in your mind. Why does God tell the Jews to when they get into Palestine, wipe every man, woman, and child, and then at the end tells them to love them. That's always and is going to be on my heart forever. He wants them eliminated, but at the same time tells us to love them. Again, as I mentioned before, the corporate sense 
Yes, they are to be wiped out because of what they can do. But in the personal sense, where we are, they're your neighbor. They're not your enemy. You're supposed to love your neighbor. We're called to love them. This call to perfection is a call to never give up is what it is. If we are the the precious blood-bought children of God, our every endeavor is to look like, is to act like his children. That's what's supposed to be going on. We're to be giving him praise every single day. And how do we do that through our life? We want to make sure that we are prosecuting this love to the end. Fully, joyfully, perfectly. The other day we were speaking and and I think Donna asked me the question, what is your worst frightening thing that would happen to you? And I said, if I lost my mind. And the reason for that is, then I would be unable to love God the way he wants me to love him. Because I would forget. I don't want that to ever happen, but if God does it, it's his choice. Turn with me to 1 John 4, and I want to end our time there, and then I'm going to give you instructions of what the rest of our time is. We didn't take that early break to uh, say hello to everybody because I wanted to leave it to after the message because now you know what you're to do. Not go to your friend. Not start speaking to your husband. Not speaking to the, the guy that you remember from two years ago or something like that. You are to go to someone you don't know. First John chapter 4. <clears throat> and I want to say this after I tell you of this man who came to this class, or actually was faith builders. Came a few weeks and I, I, I listening to him, I didn't like some of the things that he was saying. And I said to him, could you come up to my office? I'd like to talk to you. And so I got to know him for a little bit, and, and he told me he just got out of jail. And uh, I said, there's something bothering me. I, I, I hear little snippets here and there, and, and it's bothering me. Um, I, I got to ask you this question. What do you think about some of these things? And he says, well, when I was in jail, I was in a white supremacist group. And I said, okay, and what do you think about that now? And he was for it. I said, then leave the campus right now. We don't want you here. We do not want you here. Um, This gospel does not go out to somebody like that. You leave, you confess your sin, you repent, you can come here. But if you've got some superiority complex, then you don't need to be here. Because I I come to 1 John, as a matter of fact, I believe I took him to 1 John chapter 4, Verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And I challenged him. I said, do you love like that? Folks, you better love like that, and you better love everybody around you like that. Because if you don't, there's implications here. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought 
to love one another. And if we don't, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You better be loving. And you better be loving everybody that you possibly can, even your enemies, praying for them, praying even for those who persecute you.